welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. With David Kahn. With David Kahn, yes. Featuring I was going to say that, actually. David Kahn. Yeah, well, featuring David Kahn sometimes. Co-host. So this is the year in review. Thanks for coming up to San Francisco. What I really learned, um, and I'd love to get your take, David, but what I really learned was that it's really about people's stories. It's about how there's an emotional connection between them and the environment and you and them when they're telling the story. And that's what makes a great podcast. Those are the stories. And then things that like we've learned that I had no idea about, like even though I spent my entire career, 25 years doing environmental stuff, most of the people we met they wouldn't be coming into an EPA office. They wouldn't be like, you know, in the formal world, but they have so much to offer. The thing that I learned the most was that even somebody like me can make a contribution. I just didn't think that there's anything for me to do, that it was just bureaucrats and people who are making administrative decisions to impact how I would live my life. And now, you know, California is passing the no plastic straw law. You and I went on a lot of adventures. We're going to hear about some of them as we go along. That was really fun, too. Um, we're going to start off, actually, with Musa Makranga uh, in Cape Town. Like, at the beginning of the year, they were about to run out of water. Unbe- and, uh, unbelievable. Yeah. Cape Town has a massive water crisis. In fact, the water crisis is so bad that there is a, a day zero where the city is going to run out of water. Wow. And that day is in, I think it's in sometime in May of this year. So so in the, May 2018, yeah. Cape Town is projected to completely run out of water. Completely. Wow. Major city. Um and I and I think running out of water in a, in a major city is um is like famine. It's a political thing. So what is what is South Africa or Cape Town doing to meet that challenge? Do you Look, have uh, desalination plants, we have very strict water regulations, but the foresight in doing some of these things was not adequate. So if you ask me, much more could have been done. So what will happen, Musa, on in May this year? The city is trying to drill into aquifers under Table Mountain. They're trying to deploy desalination plants. They're trying to do all kinds of things, ration water. But, you know, I don't want to sound like a, you know, doomsday caller, but there is a very, very likely high likelihood that the city's going to run out of water. David, then you and I went to the Central Valley. It's just kind of amazing that so many Californians still don't have access to drinking water. It is pretty crazy. I live in LA and there's golf courses everywhere and I'm taking 30 minute showers. And when I hear that, I feel horrible. Not 30 minutes, hopefully. (laughs) Not anymore, (laughs) but maybe at that time. And I feel bad. I don't think you've ever taken a 30 minute shower. I might've taken one in this building once before. Not this building, my house. Yeah, I believe I'm. They, they they make those records public now. Everyone's going to think I take thirty minute showers. Anyway, let's hear from Adriana Renteria from the Community Water Center. So all around us, there are smaller communities, um, farm worker communities, um, that really provide agriculture not just for our our state, but for the country and and for the world, really. How many people do you think um, 
that you serve don't have access to water that meets federal drinking water standards? We estimate that over a million Californians currently don't have access to safe and affordable water. A million, that's a big number. It's a big number. I think one of the reasons why it's not on the forefront of our media um, is because it's not happening in one area. It's not just one, one city of one million people. This is happening throughout the state in small pockets, and it's particularly affecting small rural communities. Uh, low-income communities and communities of color. And so when you have such a spread out issue that has many different, um, that looks many different ways, it's kind of hard to find one unified solution for it. Um, but even beyond being exposed to unsafe water during the drought, many people just lost access to water, period. So um, here in Tulare County, we, um, the community of East Porterville, they had over 2,000 wells that went dry. And so they were on private domestic wells. It really impacted um, that entire community's ability to, to live um, and to, to feel healthy, you know, even things like washing dishes. Well, the community really came together, and especially um, the community church offered showers. Um, the, um, the schools opened up to provide, to provide an opportunity for the students to take showers. I grew up in the valley. I love the valley. All of this is that's my family. Um, uh, my parents were farm workers, so I really relate to a lot of the smaller communities in the area. I just really thought um, that's not just happening in Flint. It's also happening here in my hometown, in, in my community. So to learn from the world experts in water conservation, David and I jump on an LL jet and we go to Israel. That was, a, that was a, like our biggest adventure of the year together. It's probably my biggest adventure of my life, but it's just an incredible shift in perspective when you realize like how limited their access is to water. It just like just mind boggling. I mean, one of the things that blew me away is that in California, they recycle nine percent of wastewater, and in Israel, it's eighty percent. I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah. So here we hear from like one of the environmental leaders in Israel, Jay Shafet. Water issues are, have been from time immemorial the main problematic issues of this part of the world. Uh, and uh, some of it is, you know, probably cyclical cycles. But Israel's current drought cycle is uh, unprecedented. What we call the Jordan River is really just a trickle, uh, not navigable even by a flat-bottomed kayak. The problem is both the lack of rainwater and the... Um, rapid development. I would say to a large degree, especially up north, the uh, nature protection people are in a constant struggle with the farmers. Keeping that water flowing through nature is one of our top goals. And then in the Dead Sea, the problem is uh, exacerbated by a couple of things. One is all of the mining that goes on, both for salt and um, potassium and bromide. And the geology of the area is causing these huge sinkholes, which are making it really dangerous. We're in Tel Aviv right now. It looks like there's rampant development. Where are they getting their water from, Jay? What's really feeding the huge development and what's making sure that what happened in, or almost happened in Cape Town is never going to happen here, which is a relatively well-planned investment in desalination. And that's keeping water in the taps, but it's not keeping water in nature. There is a plan now to put desalinated water back in the Jordan River. And, of course, the overuse of the aquifers in, under the, the coastal aquifer here and the mountain aquifer where Israel 
uses at will and until those aquifers are also dangerously close to their red lines and they can start to get brackish. Still the biggest and only real freshwater reservoir source in the country. We're by far and away the country that uh, reuses uh, 80% of its wastewater. You and I had an amazing time in the West Bank learning about water issues. We did. I thought it was an incredible trip. I definitely was a little bit worried, but as soon as we got in there, there was a huge Coca-Cola sign, and I knew we were going to be okay. You just felt comfortable. I did enjoy being there and the education, and I mean, the whole experience was just eye-opening and just breaking down all the ideas that I thought that I understood about the conflict. Leaving comfort zone of California, going out and seeing the world, kind of just it opens horizons. You think of the world differently. You see stuff differently, like how they approach stuff. It, it really helped me get out of the place I was in. No, definitely. It's a, I mean, look, I've never been on a plane for 15 hours. The idea of sitting on a plane that long was an anxiety experience. Now I know you're planning our next trip, which will be 20 hours to like the South Pole, but it'll be fun. I can't wait to do that. Um, so in Ramallah, we met with Dr. Abdel Rahman Tamimi, and uh, here he is. In Palestine and in, in most of the Mediterranean countries, water is political, social, economical issue. And what is the main driver of the problem? We have very limited water resources because we are in semi-desert area. And we have a huge demand, population growth, economic development, uh, and urbanization, uh, climate change. All these drivers uh, making the water issue is very complicated. And at the same time, the Palestinians and Israelis, they are sharing the same aquifers. Uh, sharing the same aquifer means everyone, uh, th the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, everyone tries to make... Uh, uh, his share uh, bigger. Uh, that's why the, the whole conflict is about how to share the cake. You can't live without uh, enough drinking water for one day. That's why the, the water issue is is main driver for conflict. And uh, it's, it's uh, part of the uh, clashes between Palestinians and Israelis because everyone wants to, uh, to control the water resources. And unfortunately, the political dimension of this problem is uh, the Israelis, they claim this is their historic right, their religion right, and the Palestinians, they have the same claims. Ultimately, you know, for equity, everyone needs to share the water because there's limited water and more and more people. So how, how is that happening? Equity with incubation doesn't work together because you come and occupy another people land, another people water and use it for your benefits without taking into consideration the interest of other side, which is the Palestinians in this case. As a result of having so little water, it seems like you're doing everything to squeeze water wherever yes, you yes. can. Tell us about some of the innovations. Yes, and we have a huge public awareness campaigns to save water and not to waste water, to use the gray water, which is not uh, wastewater, but it is without bathroom water, uh, to use it for gardening, for uh, production trees like uh, 
uh, olive trees or uh, other things. And at the same time, we encourage people to collect rainwater during the winter and use it in the summer. There is a lot of uh, activities just to make uh, addi- uh, to make Palestinians have additional water. And uh, in the same time, the water harvesting doesn't need Israeli permits. That's because they cannot catch the rain. Smoke fills the air. Neighborhood after neighborhood evacuated as these fires rage. Here in Santa Rosa, the fire, 0% containment. Eventually, hundreds of families will return to see their homes destroyed, devastated by wildfires that are raging through California's wine country. One of the big themes of 2018 was wildfires throughout the West, actually throughout the world. Russia, Greece, everywhere you look, things were burning. Early on with Podshipath, we went to Santa Rosa, which had experienced one of the deadliest wildfires at that time in California's history, and met with people who had survived and lived through it. And um, it was really just, I don't know, so heart-wrenching talking with them. I mean, it's devastating. It's hard to understand what someone else is going through. The same thing happened later this year in Malibu. It's unbelievable, just the power of nature and the force of these fires. We talked with Laurie Barrickman and Lauren Martin. It was just crazy windy. We live in a hilly area. Everything was just ripping by. And so that night we went to sleep and um, my daughter ended up waking us up saying, you know, I think there's something that you should know. And we went out on our back deck and, you know, all the neighbors are up and, you know, you can just see. It was warm. It was windy. The house is, the house is rattling. And we smelled smoke around midnight. Kind of walked outside and looked and saw the hills burning, which looked maybe 20, 30 miles away. So I thought, it's coming from over there. Then all of a sudden you look out another window and the sky is glowing a pinkish orange color. Nobody told us to leave. There were no firemen knocking on our door. Um, We left based on a feeling that something wasn't right. By the morning, our house was totally burned to the ground and the trees burned for days after that because um, the firemen had to prioritize people's lives. They were were out rescuing people. Um, So it really happened very quickly. Um, I've heard from other people that the winds were moving so fast that people were in their homes and they they would see the fire on the horizon and before they could get their things together, their roof was on fire. Um, it was that fast. I knew when I saw it, I knew everything was going to go. I knew we weren't going to come back to stuff. It moved so fast and you could just, I mean, it was a wall of flames. I threw blankets in the car and a cup, I think maybe a pillow or two and the stuff down. I'm like, for sure it was within a mile. Unfortunately, lots of people have had much more horrifying things where things are on fire around them. You know, we do um, have friends who didn't make it out of the fire. It was unstoppable. So, David, another big theme that we explored with Podship Earth this year was how the media portrays environmental issues. I don't know if it, like, how it's affected how you see and, like, take in environmental news. I just think it's crazy with respect to how many different reporters and outlets are putting out information about the environment and they're so ignorant and uninformed. There's so much scientific information out there. Why don't they talk to people who understand what's happening with the climate and report on something accurately instead of their opinion based on very little information? And then the other thing I see is like all this need to like have this false balance where you know what, even though 99% of people in the scientific community understand climate change is real, they kind of share the screen with some complete wingnut who clearly has no idea what they're talking about, but their view gets 
equal weight. This whole equal weight thing kind of drives it's me It's not contest. even equal weight. I think they get more weight. And because they're sitting there yelling into their, you know, bullhorn, like, it sounds like their story is the real one. And that somehow people that are educated and scientists and have done research for decades, that their voice is not heard as loud, mostly because they're not as obnoxious or trying to, like, get their message out there. But it's definitely something that has to change. So we caught up with Betsy Rosenberg. She's a kind of force of nature. Here's what Betsy has to say. It's almost like there was a memo that said, no matter how many heat records we break and how many, you know, infernos we have burning, how many monster mudslides or hurricanes, as I call them, because this is all weather on steroids, they never say this could be climate change. The news networks are not only catering to the base that voted for Trump, meaning lowest common denominator, talking down to them and, you know, for fear of alienating them, but they're since when do you do news by ratings? It's supposed to be about the most important stories of our time. And this is the biggest story that's not getting told. There is not one program, not one hour of programming on regular programming, maybe an occasional special on environmental challenges and solutions. So when I do see these occasional stories on the TV network, news, uh, documentary, um, CNN sent someone up to the melting Arctic uh, they called it global warning, but there was absolutely nothing throughout the whole hour, which is a lot for them to devote to climate change about what to do. And like, we're going zombie-like off a climate cliff. Why is there that missing piece consistently, always? We kind of went from problem, what problem to, oh yeah, it's too late. What about that sweet spot in the middle, which has been at least 20 years that I've been paying attention, where we talk about what we can do. It's this sense of defeatism, ignorance, and then, oh yeah, there's nothing we can do when there's everything we can do. So the polarization actually is the saddest thing for me because we haven't used this as a great unifier. Every time we mention climate change, the, it shows that the ratings go down. People tune out. We have an eco-literacy crisis in this country. The dots have not been connected. If the dots were connected by meteorologists, reporters, anchors, when we're having no shortage of extreme weather events, so destructive, so long-lasting in terms of impact, they still don't have electricity and water in a big part of Puerto Rico. But is that in the headlines? No. Because they don't connect those dots. And people say, well, the environment's too depressing. You think Trump and what's going on is not depressing? So there's all this hypocrisy. We're in a big planetary pickle and it's late in the game. And who is talking to the American adult population about what we can do? So David, the next thing that I really wanted to focus on on Podship Earth is kind of the psychological underpinnings of how we talk about the environment, how we talk about change. And it's often very fear and guilt driven. In the first episode, we said very clearly that we only protect the things we love and we only love the things we experience. And if we experience nature, we're going to protect it as opposed to saying, you should do this, David. I think, you know, you're a bad person for not doing this. We met with Renee Lertzman and she kind of talked us through some guilt issues. A lot of climate and environmental organizations and initiatives you know, are mainly focused on raising levels of awareness and educating people about what's happening. A lot of the campaigns that I get through the letterbox or see get, you know, bombarded on email, they're trying to tell me what I should do. Mm-hmm. There's, and it feels very shame and guilt driven rather than helping us feel that we'd want to do it. I think that we're hopefully in a bit of a paradigm shift where there's a growing recognition that the way that we communicate about these issues really has to change and that the 
the legacy the past few decades has been how do we push the right levers to get people to feel motivated. And that way of thinking itself is very counterproductive. And when you create a context of safety, compassion, acceptance, which is sounds it, so foreign to most environmental folks, that it changes the whole dynamic. I don't think we really started Podshipa thinking that there'd be these kind of Buddhist undertones, but certainly meeting with Johanna Macy early on kind of blew my mind. Her, her whole frame of, you know what? There are bad things happening to the earth. We need to grieve them and we need to move on. And that was so cathartic for me. Um, I, I really appreciated Johanna. I just think harboring resentment and carrying stuff with us is not going to allow us to move forward. And I was shocked just to hear her say that because I want to like get in there and fight with people and blame them for things. But to hear her say that, it was just like, that's okay. Let's move on. What's next? And I like that attitude. Anger is sometimes an appropriate reaction, but like, what do we do with it? How do we move past it? Here's the author, Johanna Macy, who gives us some perspective. It's uh, probably one of the hardest times I can imagine to open your eyes, open the mind, open the heart to what is happening uh, in and with our species and our planet. And yet at the same time, uh, so, so we walk around numbing ourselves. That's perfectly natural. Uh, you know, we have lives to live and we feel that this is the, we're tempted to think that if I let myself really feel the grief, the disgust, the dismay, uh, the outrage that is there in me and the fear, well, I wouldn't be able to live my life. I'd be stuck in it forever. Everything is impermanent, and so are our feelings. And if we can speak what we feel, then we're freed from that. Then it becomes uh, just makes room for other things. We're not stoppered anymore. It's our throats aren't closed, and there's vitality in that. Uh, boy, and it's beautiful to get into uh, even stomping and shouting how disgusting and obscene this is what is being happening to our earth and how people are being bought and people are being automated and but then once you're able to do this with uh, folks that you trust uh, pretty soon you find yourself just love for things and hilarity uh, because it's pure it's just energy and we have been afraid to let life in it feels like our entire life is programmed around devices, iPhones, tablets, laptops, you know, everything, every device we have seems intent TVs on distracting us from understanding the world around us. I think distraction is a huge, big, mega theme of the age that we live in. David, could you stop looking at your iPhone? What are you doing? Come on. Jesus. It is like an addiction. Yeah, of course. I mean, you wake up, first thing I do in the morning is look at my phone and see how many emails came in from the East Coast almost every day. I'm almost programmed. And then I just tell myself, don't look at your phone for five minutes, another 10 minutes. Because as soon as it happens, it's like I'm just plugged in. We found some answers by talking with Dr. Denise Renee. The more people distract themselves, the more that there's harm to the planet. And the more that people can make time and space for themselves and self-awareness and valuing themselves and others and their relationships with others, 
then the relationship with the planet changes. And then therefore the planet itself changes. You know, distraction uh, is uh, really the undermining of uh, humanity's ability to pay attention for really losing the ability to then manage our future. I meet up with Alex Sujong Kim Pang, who helps us understand that this isn't a new problem. Distraction is a very old problem and also a very old phenomenon, right? You know, the fact that uh, that Buddhists have been talking about this for you know, literally thousands of years. You know, they have the concept of the monkey mind, right? The mind that keeps jumping from one subject to another that is captured by first one thing and then something else and never settles down. travels we've met a lot of religious and spiritual leaders it's been fun like i it's really actually been fulfilling for me there's definitely a lot of insight that you can get from being around people that are you know trying to access their faith in their higher power and do you believe in a higher power i definitely do what what would that higher power be it might be obi-wan kenobi it might be an alien from another planet i mean i definitely believe that we're all connected and that there is a higher calling. We caught up with Golo Pilse of the Brahmu Kamaris. I love these guys. Uh, let's hear from Golo. Well, at UN, we talk a lot about resilience and inner strength and uh, creating local networks. So um, meditation helps you, that has been also proven, uh, to strengthen your social competence. You are in harmony with yourself. You love yourself. And if you love yourself, you love others and you love nature. So you change automatically behavior because you don't want to destroy something which you love or which you appreciate. Meditation helps you to change habits. Uh, psychology has done a lot of research and they found out when you meditate, you literally increase the neuronal flexibility, the plasticity of your brain. You're open to new ideas and you're able to get rid of old ideas or old behavior patterns you anyhow want to get rid of. So this is something also very, very important. We have to adopt a contemplative manner, a meditative approach, and we have to go time to time into silence and reflection. And this helps us a lot to change, to build up inner resilience, and that's what we need for the coming days. One of the things that really inspired me to do Podship Earth, and I spent a lot of time referencing and talking about, was the Pacific Crest Trail. And I just loved it. I miss it every day. And Podship Earth kind of helps me connect to people that also have a connection with nature. In my interview with Johanna Macy, she described two separate rivers of science and spirituality converging into one great body of water. I asked her to explain what she means by that. They're flowing together just and as we are here. And what they have in common, what each of those rivers is telling us, the science and the spirituality, is that our planet is alive. She is the whole. Our lar- she is our larger body. We are living members in her. And our, the adventure we have now is learning to experience that, learning to trust that. Gratitude opens the gates very wide to, for, to experience that. And also being unafraid to be drowned in tears, too, or scared shitless. 
One of the coolest things about Podship Earth is that it got me outdoors a lot. And I got to do some fun things like hike Mount Shasta with my son Marcus and go fly fishing. And in this clip, I go to Ghost Ranch with my cousin Yair along the Continental Divide Trail. We're right next to a little babbling brook. It's pretty sweet. So you're saying on the trail um, that someone that doesn't have roots in life becomes kind of, it's a difficult thing to not have roots. What does that mean? Sometimes people that having a hard time finding their identity, know who they are, have, you know, roots connected to something in the past, something that grounds them, are keep keep trying to get reinforcements from the outside to who they want to be. Um, and they can be very aggressive sometimes or angry when they don't get the reinforcements they need. For me, like I mean, it is a struggle. It's not easy to know who you are. Everyone, like, assumes you must know who you are. But, like, getting rid of all the societal bullshit, what your parents think you should do, all the neurotic crap, like, it's hard. Like, for me, being in nature just strips away all that bullshit, and you're kind of left with who you are. That's why some people, I think, have a really hard time in nature, because it's just so exposing. Uh, yeah, I agree. I mean... Nature is exposing, especially hiking. It is very alone. It, you know, you have a lot of time to think and doubt and, and, and talk to yourself. So, yeah. When I met up with Kim Chambers, I just realized she was just awesome. I mean, this woman has done absolutely incredible feats that I would never even contemplate doing. I got in the water in the San Francisco Bay and froze my absolute ass off. What I learned from Kim was just this indomitable spirit to continue to keep pushing. I don't know, she's amazing. Well, I love that I think also my experience is that it's so primal. You get to connect with, well, you get to connect with yourself because you become very aware of, okay, um, how does my body feel? Am I tired? Am I cold? You get to really um, be very um, aware of every part of your body, which is, I don't think we really get to do that mm. in everyday, you know, world on land. And also the connection with nature. And Molokai Channel is uh, a very rough stretch of water. Uh, there's tiger sharks, there's Portuguese man of war. <laughs> and yeah. I got in at 8.30 at night at Molokai. Even at night, the water is so clear. Mm. And it's just like a dream. And, mm. and you you know, my, my fingers would, you know, go through the water and... Mm. This, the bioluminescence just like sparkles off, like glitter off my fingertips and it sort of it becomes mesmerizing and you know when you're in the water in the beginning your heart is like the, the adrenaline everything it's so so scary I mean I'm the f first to say look, I am I have been terrified with every one of these swims I don't do them because I'm not scared uh, it's the opposite you do them because you are scared yes yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> because I have learned the, the, the satisfaction, the gift of pushing through it because for the rest of your life you can say, I did that. And it's not to boast about it. It's just because you're going to go through trauma again. It's inevitable in life. But there's these are little treasures that you can just tuck away in your sort of back pocket and be like, I'm going through something really difficult right now, but shit, I just I swam from Molokai to Oahu. If I can do that, I can get through this. It's obviously a ridiculous hardship and incredibly 
strenuous and and you need a lot of tenacity and all those things but at the same time you can really see how engaged you are yeah. in being in the water it just feels like i'm that's where i should be it's so primal and nothing else matters and i think that if you can just imagine doing something you didn't think you could do and even if it does scare you you will evolve in a completely different way you'll find a fulfillment you will grow as a human being and if i can do this anyone can do this i think we all deserve to be the best versions of ourselves um it's easier said than done but uh my experience has been one of wonderment and fulfillment and i'm not done yet Talking of indomitable spirit, Podship Earth contributor Friday Apeliski and I sat down with Madonna Thunderhawk and her daughter Marcella Gilbert to talk about the movie Warrior Women. We were a movement of families. Being the daughter of Madonna, she definitely had a reputation of being strong. And when someone went to her for help, she did what she had to do to make a difference. Each generation has to pick up the fight, the struggle. Yeah, it's just an ongoing thing. The younger generations in this country realized that it's not just we 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 again as indigenous people, we're not standing alone. That this is something that's affecting everybody. And then when we were up there at the camp in 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 2016 and here in November comes rolling around and uh Trump gets gets in, you know, and uh it shocked everybody. And Literally, because we were there watching as elders, supporting all the young people that were there. Marcy, what does it mean in 2018 to be Indigenous in this country? When we have a a corporate monstrosity that's killing the air and killing the water and killing the land and killing the natural, um, you know, the natural um, relatives, you know, all all the animals and plants and everything... It's, it has, definitely has a different meaning now. And, and so those issues are real for everybody. There's a very strong sense in the movie of your identity, you knowing who you are, where you came from, how you fit into the landscape, your role, whereas I think many people feel like adrift. You feel very, in the movie and right now, very grounded. Growing up in an activist family, if you learn where you come, where you where you come from, what your responsibilities are, what direction you should be going in, and then learning the tools to move forward in a meaningful way, so it's it's not a clear, easy path, yeah. but it's it's worth it because you do at the you know when you reach get through all that, you do have a sense of identity, who you are, and what your responsibilities are, and how all these gifts that you got from your experiences, how do we use those to move forward? As Indigenous people, we have the right to to be here. So David, one of the cool things for me to witness was you going to your first political rally. You got energized, radicalized. It was fun. I felt like, I mean, there were a lot of politicians and career people there, and I think it would be a lot of fun to do stuff that was outside the city where there was a lot of groundswell and people that were really... Pa- I mean, people were passionate, but this is about public policy. So you're, you're ready to go to your, like, Dakota Access Definitely, pipeline? 100%. Like, I want to be out there. I want to experience this with everybody else and, you know, just get involved. Fighting for your right to live on the planet. 
100%. I want to participate and I want to see what's happening. So talking of connection to the earth, David, I was just blown away by Pandora Thomas. She was talking about like inmates at San Quentin and she's talking about permaculture with them. Like if I was in prison, I'm not sure I'd be able to think about permaculture. I thought that was ridiculous that somebody incarcerated is even thinking about the environment at all. I thought it was amazing. Let's hear from Pandora. It's like the same pain and frustration we're all on the outside feeling about what's happening. They were expressing that. We would do activities that help them reconnect to stories and experiences of being in nature when they were outside, but also on the inside. So they really just loved being able to retrace that connection, learn how to teach their peers about it. So I think they were just excited to be equipped with the same kind of environmental literacy that others have and having it on the inside. And the men also encouraged us to then go off and work out for the reentry community. So for men and women coming home, the powerful shifts that can happen when uh, they're learning about nat natural systems and their own patterns. Pandora, I know you've seen some shifts through your work with community climate resilience projects as well. How did you make those happen? We didn't start as designers to go in and say, we're going to come up with some designs and then we'd love to get your feedback and uh, engage you as a community. We wanted to turn that on the head and start with, what do you as a community even need us to focus on? What are you already doing? What assets already exist? So they assessed. They shared their stories. We talked a lot about what it has looked like as long as these African-American communities actually all moved there. Then as they assessed what happened, we started to go out onto the land, observe, and then slowly they learned and shared strategies. So what might you do in this site to curb flooding? And then we would share ideas, they would share ideas. We created what's called a people's plan for Marin City. And this people's plan is not a static plan. I thought it was crazy when they were talking about how many hours kids spend outside versus how many hours people that are incarcerated are allowed to spend in the yard. And the fact that people that are incarcerated spend more time outdoors than kids that are in school is crazy. We catch up with Richard Louvre, who wrote the book Last Child in the Woods. Not that many years ago, some environmental educators, believe it or not, uh, did, did not respond well to the idea that maybe we ought to be taking kids outdoors. They didn't see that as part of environmental education. It, one of the things I'd like to see a lot more of is schools and libraries uh, becoming centers of bioregional bio a knowledge and awareness to focus at least some of the science that they learn in school on their own bioregion. One of the, the the most startling headlines to come out of of your research and and your writing, Richard, was the relationship between ADHD and the fact that it's aggravated by a lack of exposure to nature. Today, um, if you go to the Children in Nature Network, which is a nonprofit that grew out of Last Child in the Woods you'll see abstracts for over 700 studies. And they all seem to point in the same direction, which is uh, being outdoors is good for physical health, mental health, um, and cognitive functioning. So David, what are the things that you think you could fight for? Like what, what's out there? I haven't studied statistics since I was in college, but when you look at the evidence that people in the same county, some people are living to be 90 and some of them are living to be like 70, it's shocking. We caught up with Dr. Tony Eiten, who's an expert in this field. 
Well, the really interesting thing is that when you set foot in any of these places, the first thing you notice is that every major system is pretty much offline. Transportation is inadequate. Housing is overcrowded, expensive. Uh, there's lacking sidewalks and sort of physical infrastructure. Parks are, you know, poorly maintained if they exist at all. There's generally freeways running to or through those communities. You don't have um, grocery stores. You have fast food places, corner stores. It's the same city. You know, so it's the same parks department. It's the same, you know, land use decision-making agencies. It's, it's the same, you know, public works. Yet you see one part of the city managed in a completely different way than another part of the city. What did you find were the causes of this disparate treatment? You're forced to conclude that the difference here is that people are undervalued in these places because they don't have power. They're not seen as having a sufficient control over how decisions are made. So they're ignored and they're neglected. And that has adverse impacts, not just on their physical environment, but also on the social environment. People start to feel, they internalize that devaluation and it, it actually changes their physiology. That's what we've come to understand over the years. That it, It's not just the environment. The environment gets under the skin and changes how people's actual physiology operates. And we found uh, life expectancy differences even within the same city in Oakland of 22 years uh, between, you know, a neighborhood in the flatlands and a neighborhood in the hills, which is, you know, the equivalent of, you know, living in Sweden or living in Afghanistan. You're finding the socio-ecological equivalent of, you know, a war-torn country in Alameda County, as well as some of the highest standard of living in the developed world within miles of each other. We used to think that it, it was our genetic code, and you describe it as really this is a zip code has a, a predeterminate impact on, on these outcomes. One of the people that I look up to and respect the most is Marie Harrison. Marie's been fighting in the trenches in San Francisco's Bayview. It was super cool to reconnect with her. Yeah, man, she spoke truth to power her whole life. The one thing I do resent is for you to look me in the face and call me a liar. You can say anything you want to say to me or about me, but do not call me a liar. You're going to tell me why you sit here and told me that I was lying. And she told me after the meeting, look, I have to keep my job. And it's not personal, Marie, but you guys just won't give up. But it now turns out, right, in the newspapers that a lot of what you were saying, that <laughs> every Not just a lot, everything Everything that we, every issue that we wrote. So tell us about some of the large contractors, what they've been well, up to. Well, let's start off with the beginning. The first lie was that they were monitoring all of the dust and the air coming off of the shipyard and all, doing all of the heavy grading. It was a lie. We were putting monitors in the community. We discovered that none of the community monitors, it, it was an empty box. It had no workings in it. Lie number two, we're all out here screaming that, this stuff is coming over the fence line, and you're saying that you have permission from the community to allow radioactive dust coming over the fence into the, our home? No. Somebody needs to tell me when this happened and who these people were. I never got the information. And our health department literally was helping them out with the lie, and they turned the health department out on the community in force, there was no actual going out sampling anything. So what's the lesson, Marie? You've been in the front line 
you've sat in thousands of community meetings, you've heard people lie to your face, you've seen that people want to speed things up to make more money, you've seen a community that's been disenfranchised and they're now selling those condos um, in the communities that you used to live in for a million dollars to people who never even heard of the shipyard. Like, what does it make you think? My God, it's not just Bayview. It's not just in one black community. Every poor black community in the United States, in this whole big old place, are going through the same things and with the same agencies. It makes no sense. It's mind boggling. I mean, it's literally a take you out to the, you know, like they say take it out to the street. This has become literally one of those kind of battles. We literally have to take them out to the street. And to remember, no, it doesn't matter how tired, how disappointed you are. Maybe everything is saying, being said to you is being said by lying and cheating. And there's always a no at the end of that. You have to remember that it is more than just your neighbor's lives or their children's lives. It's actually your life. Another fighter who puts his body on the line and has gotten arrested about, I think, 19 times is Randy Hayes. When we sat down with Randy, it really impacted you, David. I remember you were like, wow, I need to do more. It still impacts me. I just think everything he said, I mean, the, the one thing that he said that scared me the most was he's like, people are soft now. Even the Sierra Club, those people are just soft. And I was thinking, wow, I mean, he's really, he's speaking his truth. And that inspired me. Here's Randy. And I recommend to everybody out there, particularly the young people, you know, uh, put your body on, on the line in a nonviolent way, right? Do it responsibly, but understand the consequences. And uh, this is a life and death issue. We're talking about life and death of the, of, uh, you know, not future, just future generations of us, us humans, but all life on earth, you know. And uh, the rest of the web of life has just as much right to evolve in its own direction as, as we do. So, you know, we may be the human species self-absorbed in ourselves much of the time, but we need to get outside of that bubble and understand that, uh, you know, there is no human species without a healthy web of life, and it is deeply damaged, and we don't have much time. We only have time for big steps in the right direction. People now, I think, feel like if they sign an online petition, that's pretty much the same as putting your body in the line of um, I mean, well, people don't sign an online, really. They, you know, they click a button, you know, clicktivism. And, and it just is uh, relatively worthless, if not, in fact, damaging in terms of getting the job done. So I recommend cut that shit out. Quit doing it. Do something more meaningful. You know, do something real. You know, work with your neighbors and your friends and march down the street to some outfit that's doing something nefarious and just tell them, you know, you want them to change. And when they don't, go back a second time and a third time. We called it the three-by-three three strategy. You know, go at least three times and ask them. And then, you know, if they still don't, you know, particularly, say, at, at college universities, go to the administration and say, look, we want 100% renewable energy, you know, and we want it fast. You know, we'll give you six months. Get it done. You know, we got to save this planet. You know, divest, you know, your, your college endowment. And we want that done, nine months or less. That's all you get, you know, the same time it takes to birth a human. You know, quit pissing around. Get this shit done. 
you know, and, and ask them, you know, be polite the first time, be less polite the second time, be less polite the third time, and the fourth time, do nonviolent civil disobedience. Shut down that administration building on the college campus. Don't let them get away with this shit. They're killing your planet. You know, they're killing your future careers. There's no vibrant economy on a nearly dead planet. And that's what's going on. So get off your butt, quit clicking the computer and get out there and raise some hell. One of the cool things that's changed and that I've really been excited by is just the number of young people that think of the environment as their number one issue. And when I was in the UK talking to Paul McNamee about Brexit, this is what he said. So there was um, an election in 2017 where the Conservatives lost their majority and polling that came out straight after, um, which surprised even us, said that climate and environment were... Um, for under 35s, the top two issue, and for under 24-year-olds, climate change was the number one issue for 24-year-olds. This week's episode ends where the entire series of Podship Earth began, with Gina McCarthy, the former administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency and a personal hero of mine. People have a visceral and really depressed reaction to this kind of news. Actually, I do. The environmental indicators are not pointing in the right direction when it comes to the world's climate, oceans, wildlife, you name it. Gina, as someone who's been in the driver's seat for so many years and had such a comprehensive view, give us some context. How much should we be worrying? Well, I'm not suggesting you shouldn't be worried, but what I'm suggesting is that you shouldn't be hopeless or else nothing will happen but what they dictate. You know, this is the United States of America. They don't get to make all these decisions without public input. And we have to raise our voices. So, David, we met with 156 people. It's been an amazing year. I just want to thank you for helping make it all happen. And it's really been fun. It has been fun. I mean, when we started, I didn't realize how involved I was going to be. I didn't realize we were going to travel to so many places. I didn't realize we were going to spend so much time together. So... It has been a treat, and I I do appreciate it. And we just scratched the surface this week. I mean, literally, there's so many cool people that we spoke to. And and the thing that I look forward to in the year ahead is like, it's nearly an unlimited supply of amazing people doing really, really cool work to help heal the planet. Can we talk to some people about aliens next year? No. So next year is going to be amazing. I think I predict some changes on the horizon. Who knows what will happen, but you never know could end up doing different things, but I want to make sure we keep Podship Earth going. One of the cool things that we did, David, was make a poster. I love the Podship Earth poster. I love the poster. I got like 500 of them. I give them out to my favorite restaurants and spots in Los Angeles. If you ever see one of the posters up, you know that's Podship approved. And take a picture of it, send it to David and I, and we'll send you a poster. It's like a treasure hunt for Podship Earth. It's like a Pokemon Podship Earth hunt. Absolutely couldn't have done this without Rob Spate. Rob is our editor. He's incredible. Like, he turns what would normally sound absolutely terrible. We sound amazing at the end of it. And a big thanks to Nancy Frontier, who helps produce the show, get the guests, coordinate everything. Really appreciate it. I'm Haley Block, who works on some of the social media and a bunch of other stuff with me. And Will Wilkins, who does some of the behind-the-scenes technical wizardry for me. We have a really great team. And so- also, when Rob was on vacation, Will took over. Next week, we're going to talk about New Year's resolutions. I have like five. Exactly. We can't wait to hear what they are. I have one or two. From me, Jared Blumenfeld. And me, David Kahn, the little guy. Have a fabulous week. Six, almost six and a half minutes past twelve. 
and BBC One is closing down. From all of us here, this is Peter Brook wishing you a very good night.